Well, beloved, remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, our text this morning is verse 1 through 13. This morning will be the conclusion of the parable of the ten virgins. And before I read the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon it and upon us. Now, Father, do come and bless now the reading of your word, the preaching of it. Be pleased, O God, to move in our hearts and our minds these truths, Lord, that we will find from the text. Lord, bless the means of grace. Strengthen our faith, our hope, our resolve, O Lord, to live in the day that we live, Lord, with a heightened sense of caution and diligence and obedience. Father, come, bless the preaching of your word to the saving of your elect. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, hear the word of the Lord. And then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. And now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Well, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as I plan to bring the conclusion to this parable this morning, I want to make a couple of connections first. Well, the first connection I want to make is that there's nothing new in this parable that Jesus has not already taught his listeners, those who followed him particularly the disciples, those who, had, who were familiar with his ministry, they knew what this parable, the essence of it was teaching them. There's nothing new. Jesus is just taking the opportunity and the circumstance to bring about these essential truths so that they might grasp it, even though it's a different context, explained a little bit differently. And as this parable has different characters and features to it, yet it's the same essential truth that we've already seen that we will look at in just a moment. 
So there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to gospel truths and doctrines that we should wholeheartedly believe in and continually have affirmed in our lives. Repetition is vitally important to the growth of every Christian. Repetition. The other connection I want to make is one that I made in our previous sermon is the connection to the sermon, or at least the sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse, how our Lord ends that message and he begins, or at least at the end of that message, he talks about the faithful steward, or not the faithful steward, but the faithful servant left over his house, the house steward. It seems clear, and it's not my just my opinion, it's, it's it seems clear to many expositors that this is Jesus addressing those ministers, those priests who have been placed in charge over his house, over the spiritual house of Israel, who had the obligation and the duty and the privilege of, of shepherding the sheep of God. That he left in charge and while away, they were foolish. They were not faithful stewards at all over the house of God. They acted foolishly. They acted sinfully. They were disobedient. Luke even adds to that particular text in his gospel about the drunkenness and the immorality of those leaders, which did describe many of these priests. There's nothing new. There's nothing new as we'll see. We could go all the way back even to the very earliest administration of the church in the Old Testament and we find times where God's ministers were very sinful people and misled God's sheep and God even then rebuked them and judged them for it. We move to the parable of the ten virgins and we see something that is it's a continuing thought. If you look right there in verse 1, when Jesus says, then, he's making a connection. It's not a separation. He's continuing his thought process. He's continuing to, to explain and to set forth before his listeners the need to be vigilant, the need to be obedient and faithful. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. This parable seems to address the church at large. The first one, the ministers. This one, the church in general. And then he moves to the parable of the talents. You can see this seamless teaching segment of our Lord Jesus Christ where the parable of the talents addresses personal stewardship over the, the, the gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. So we have ministers, we have the church, and then we have individuals. And then the chapter concludes with, well, the great white throne judgment. That there is a day in which our Lord will come again to reconcile 
all the deeds of men everywhere in every land, every place, everyone who has ever been born will give an account for all that they have said, all that they have thought, and all that they have done. It's vital to remember that this instruction is coming right before his crucifixion. He's not but hours away from being betrayed, arrested, and falsely accused. And so that even gives a, a, at least a, a greater, um, a, a more intense understanding of what Jesus is instructing his listeners to understand, what they should grasp. They don't have time, if you will, to just sit back and, and, and be marvel over how well he is able to take this theology and wed it to certain, uh, you know, characters and illustrations. And he's not trying to wow them with his prowess as a teacher. He is, these are truths that are designed to shoot straight into their heart and our hearts too. What was it that really distinguished? What is it that distinguishes all of these things, but particularly these 10 virgins, the, the five prudent, wise, and the five foolish? Well, it's the same thing, beloved, that's always distinguished God's people from everyone else. And that's faith. Faith. Saving faith, a faith that truly rests and trusts and receives the truth of the gospel and rests in it for their own salvation. Faith has always been that, that mark that separates one from another. We are either of genuine faith or we're not. There's no middle ground in this at all. There's not half faith. There's not 20% faith. It's all faith. It's a full, complete resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. And, and these, we could go back and begin to revisit some of these parables. If you go back even to the parable of the soil, isn't that not what Jesus is actually setting forth? There, there are those who have a very similar faith. If you take the third one, they respond with joy. They even make some reformation of life. And for a season or two or three, whatever the time frame is, they look to be like every other professing believer. True and genuine. And yet our Lord tells us that's not the case. That there does come a time that they fall away due to not having faith. Now, what is it they share? They share a similar profession, don't they? What does it take to be a member of the church? What is it always taken to be a member of the church? A sort of profession of faith. 
an acknowledgement of trust, an acknowledgement of, of conviction and belief. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yes, I have put my faith and trust in him. Whether it's the old administration, whether uh, circumcised as a youth or as an adult, whatever the case may be, the sign and seal of that faith placed upon them. Whether it's baptism. The visible church is a, a, a church that we all make a profession of faith to become members of. But not everybody that makes a profession of faith is genuine. And there's a distinction between saving faith and other types of faith. All faith is not the same. And we need to, we need to understand that. This is the difference here. There are plenty of people in church that have made a profession of faith in Jesus as a teacher, as a great person in history, as someone that may have even been raised from the dead, if you will, but they don't trust him for their everlasting salvation. They can believe all kinds of great things about Jesus and never put their trust in him. It's like believing George Washington existed. You've never seen George Washington, have you? And yet you believe he exists. But you're not trusting in him for anything. So there's this historical faith that's alive and well in the church. I mean, very rarely were you going to meet anyone in the church, whether it be a weak church, strong church, or a mediocre church, whatever the kind of church it may be, very rarely you're going to meet someone that doesn't have an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is a real person in history. There's temporal faith. There's that faith that comes alive as we just talked about in Matthew 13 that it receives the gospel. It, it, it gives all of, it has all of the characteristics of a saving faith and yet it just, it, it, it doesn't persevere. For whatever reason, under different circumstances, when it comes time to actually rest in Christ, to truly double down and believe and, and, and hold on to him, they don't. And they fall away. When we look at the very essence of that distinguishing mark that in the visible church, what separates the true believers from the professing believers, if you will, or what is it that separates professing believers is genuine faith. That's always been the case throughout the history of salvation. That's always the difference. That is always the difference between the people of God, the people of this world being called out, exercising our faith, maintaining that faith, continuing to walk by faith and all of these various things. Even the children of Abraham are not marked ultimately by their ethnicity. 
We looked at that last week in Galatians chapter 3. Who are the real sons and daughters of Abraham? Those who have faith. They are the true daughters of Abraham because he is the father of faith. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, let me emphasize this point that I'm making with you this morning, this need for faith. The book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrew Christians, those who had embraced Christ, and they were undergoing serious persecution for what they believed, for believing in Christ as the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And this persecution was very intense. It was costly. And it was so fierce that it was causing these Hebrew Christians to shrink back a little bit and to consider, well, dulling down their testimony, dulling down their activity of worship, dulling down their Christianity, if you will, their faith in Christ. And when you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 and follow. I'm going to read verse 22, a few verses, and down toward the end of the chapter. It says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Now, the whole book of Hebrews emphasizes this faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I believe in verse 25, this day that is drawing near is that temporal judgment of the destruction of Jerusalem I believe it's, that's the judgment he is speaking of here. It, is, it, has, it has become very difficult to be a, a believer in Christ. And some of them were really considering falling away. It's just not worth it. Let's, you know, family is against me. My friends are against me. The, the culture, the community is against me. It's just too hard. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to hold fast to their confession of faith by uh, their confession of faith with faith. Hold fast to it. This day is drawing near. Don't give up on this means by which God has given you to strengthen your faith, to hold it up, to preserve your faith, which we would talk about the means of grace. Remember the doctrine that I set before you weeks ago is that we are, as Christians, are to live vigilant lives. We are to be vigilant 
We are to be careful, sober-minded, active in our faith. But there are seasons. There are seasons of, of human history that God's people had to heighten that. They had to increase that. They had to live with greater vigilance. And I've certainly proposed to you that I think we're living in one of those days now where there's all kinds of uproar and clamoring and clanging of, of persecution of, of conservative believers. I mean, I, I've seen the interviews. I've heard the interviews. This is mainstream now. This is not in the shadows. It's not in the back room of, of some club somewhere or in the back room of, of some mansion. This is out in the open where people are, are literally saying that those who believe in traditional Christianity are dangerous people. It's open. Now, the next step can reasonably be persecution. And so we must ourselves begin to look to the word of God, to look to scripture and say, you know, what's required of us? Well, the thing, thing that was required of them to live by faith. Look down at verse 35 and following. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. This confidence could be interpreted as faith. Don't throw away your faith. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the duty we have, the, that distinguishing characteristic between the five and the five, the wise and the foolish. And where do we fit in? What, is be, what, is, what are we being called to in our day and time? But we're being called to the same thing that they were called to, that we would exercise faith. And if need be, a heightened sense of vigilance in the means of grace so that our faith might be strengthened, our profession of faith would be in, in, uh, encouraged and strong that we would have great confidence in these things. Why? Because we are participating in all of those things that God has kindly given to us in order to strengthen our faith. If you told me, and just an illustration, if you told me that, you know, you wanted to build muscle, you were going to start working out and you were going to get in shape and all of these things and it would, you know, uh, Okay, but then if you said, you know, I'm doing all of these things, but yet I'm not eating anything, I'm starving myself, what, do you, what muscle will you build by not feeding your body? What faith can you preserve if you're not feeding your faith? 
How can you preserve your testimony? How can you preserve your profession of faith? How can you make it strong? How can you make it that, that bright and shining witness that we've been called to be in Christ? How can you do those things if you begin to shrink back from the very things that God gave to us to strengthen it with? And of course, we may fall into that camp if we're not careful there, that there are things there are those things which seem right unto man, but the end thereof are ways of death. We may think the best way to preserve ourselves is to shrink back and to go hide somewhere, to separate ourselves from the persecuted church and, and we'll come out after it's all over and beat our chest and give testimony and praise to God. That doesn't work. That doesn't, that's not the way it works. In verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is the verse that I want to set before you. And of course, it, I'm continuing to bolster this doctrine that our duty is to live by faith. And we're going to expand that in a moment. We're going to clarify what that actually looks like. But Again, enforcing upon us as the people of God that this is the essential thing that is required of us. Habakkuk had seen a vision. He's, he is discoursing with the Almighty. The Almighty is revealing to him what he is going to do in order to judge his people. And God has decided that he is going to bring a mighty scourge a king named Nebuchadnezzar, a violent man, a cruel man, a very harsh man that God had raised him up for this purpose, that he would use that man who was violent to come and chasten his people. And of course, the question is, well, what do we do? What, God, what do you want us to do as you bring this serious oppressor against us. We can't fight against him. We don't have the means to, to conquer him. We don't have the ability. We don't have the military prowess or the power or the resources to beat him at war. What shall we do? Verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to continue to believe and trust in God for your salvation and for your daily redemption, for your daily victories, for your daily blessings. The same way you trust God before, but maybe even now as you enter into this new land, this foreign land, and you become citizens, if you will, of Babylon, and you're mocked and ridiculed there because they did mock them. The Babylonians would, 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 
to, to paraphrase the taunting and the mocking, come on, sing some of those hymns for me. Sing some of those hymns about your God being almighty. Come on, sing them. Let me hear those hymns. And God's people were just broken in heart. They refused to sing those hymns. But they had to live by faith. They had to live trusting that God was in control, that God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar, that God was actually using Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what the rest, the ongoing of the book of Habakkuk is all about. He says, yes, I'm going to use him. Yes, he's going to be a fierce scourge on you. Yes, he's going to accomplish my will. And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to deal with him too. So what do we find ourselves doing, brothers and sisters, when we look at the parable of the the ten virgins? How do we compare ourselves? What is it that we need to think about? What are the conditions that we need to look for in order that we might have this sense of, okay, I know I'm to always be vigilant. I mean, we do have an enemy. Satan does roam around as a fierce, lying, seeking whom he may devour. Yes, okay, I've got to be vigilant on that front. I've got to be vigilant in my personal temptations and all, I mean, all of these things. But, but what now is inciting that I need to be even more so? Let's talk about some of those. The first one, the first one is the great compromise of God's appointed shepherds. When there is a great compromise among God's appointed shepherds, there is a reason for you and I to become more cautious, more sober-minded, and more, more vigilant, okay? Let me give you a couple of these reasons, or at least a couple of biblical um, passages where God's shepherds are condemned. If you turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is the narrative that speaks of John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's going out. And what is, what's John the Baptist doing? Well, he, he is promoting this baptism of uh, repentance, right? He's going out. He's calling the church, if you will. He's calling the people of God. He is, he's calling upon them to what? To be cleansed of their sins. Why? Why? Why do we have this picture of a forerunner going out, calling for this national repentance? Because they had become so sinful. Because they were so sinful. They had become beyond ordinary. They had become faithless. If you read the book of Matthew in particular, notice, catch how many times Jesus references the faith of the Gentiles over Israel. The faith of the Gentiles over Israel. Remember the woman that came to him and said, oh, Lord, if you would just heal my daughter. I mean, he says, woman, did I not come to the house of Israel first? And, and she goes, well, even the dogs eat from the crumbs of the table. And what did he say? He said, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. In all of my interactions, I've not seen. I have not seen this kind of faith. 
among my people. But notice, so John is calling the nation to repentance and as he is doing this, these leaders are going out to investigate. Verse seven, verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. That's strong. That is, that's offensive language. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, recognizes the problem. He recognizes that these shepherds of Israel, these men who are the teachers of the law, are corrupt, so corrupt. He even challenges why they're there for their baptism. You are a snake. I mean, you typically don't call someone a snake unless they are like really bad, right? There is a, a heightened degree of, of, of you know, uh, <laughs> badness with this person. I mean, you just don't call everybody snakes. And that's the same situation here. Now, John the Baptist here points out that they, there's nothing faithful about them, as we'll see as we continue on. In verse 8, therefore bear the fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know what John the Baptist said? Don't, 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 don't claim Abraham as your father because he's not. He's not. You're not a faith. You're corrupt. You're polluted. Look at 3 John. This is a text I decided to use just because, I mean, how many times do we, well, we turn to 3 John, right? But in 3 John, look at verse 9, and of course, you can see here that as John is writing, he points out the corruption of one of the shepherds. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren, nor uh, does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who do desire to receive the brethren Either he forbids those who, who desire to do so and he puts them out of the church. Now notice how corrupt this man is. He doesn't even, he, he doesn't even receive the apostolic doctrine and the teaching. He doesn't hold to it and he acts cavalierly. He acts autonomously from the apostles in the church. He, he willy-nilly puts people out of the church that he doesn't agree with, that doesn't agree with him. 
abusive shepherds. And what does he say in verse 11? Beloved, do not imitate that, that what is evil, but what is good. Don't imitate these men. If you go back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5. Look at verse 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it. But what will you do at the end of it? You can see here, beloved, as, as, as goes the shepherds, go the people. As go the shepherds, as goes the sheep. That the sheep take on the likeness of the shepherds. It's a great tragedy, but there's, so that's point number one, at least, a great compromise among God's appointed leaders. There, and that's, there's a variety of things we could pick out here. The, the main thing that I would pick out in our day and time is the autonomous nature of many of these leaders. The autonomous nature of many of these leaders, and just an example, one, and then we'll move on for sake of time. It's interesting that people can come up with interpretations a very important text of scripture and never have any basis of it in any expositor of church history. Now that is telling and dangerous. That is typically there's someone who's held to that view or promoted that view or insinuated that view. But when we come up with these fancy interpretations of God's word, to promote it in the church when there is no historical evidence anyone has ever held to that, that there's just no justification for it grammatically or anything else. It's the fancy of that shepherd. Brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a very dangerous situation. It's dangerous. And we are already have the propensity to be followers of men. In a, in a sinful way, in an unbalanced way, right? We already have the propensity. I mean, God has established leaderships in every segment of life. They are important. They're valuable. Good ones are very valuable. That's why the Bible says that a faithful shepherd is, well, worth twice as higher because he does his job and he's faithful at his job. The second point is just cultural moral corruption and apostasy in the church. Cultural moral corruption and church apostasy. That is the church longing for the things of the world. Look with me. And again, it's going to support many of the things I've already said, but turn to Matthew 15. Here's our Lord again condemning these Pharisees, but now he's condemning them not just for being corrupt, but he's being corrupt, but being corrupt in the way they handle the word of God. The way they handle scripture. Which, what's the connection there to moral corruptness? Well, if we handle the word of God poorly and wrongly, then how does that affect the way we live? 
It has a vital, it has a dramatic effect on how we live according to the way we understand Scripture. Look at verse, um, let's just begin at verse 1. When the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? That's their emphasis, tradition, the elders' interpretation. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have, that would help you has been given to God. Is he not to honor his father or his mother? And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And I'll stop there. And that's another issue, isn't it? Men preaching their own precepts, their own, their, their own way of seeing life apart from God's word, apart from what God had commanded the church to believe and to live out. Matthew chapter 5, it's the same thing. We don't have to turn there, but make this note that in that Sermon on the Mount, our Lord constantly, what does he say to us? Well, now you've been taught, but you know, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. What does he do in the middle of that sermon? He's correcting what they have heard about the word of God. Our Lord is correcting it. Well, there is one place I want us to look at. I want you to put your eyes on it, Matthew 5. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you exceed them, their works righteousness, their hypocritical righteousness, you have to exceed that with a righteousness that is by faith. And a righteousness by faith longs for and looks to the teaching of the Word of God. What does God's Word say? That's what I want to hear. What does God say about this? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, we see again another description of Paul's day. It's the closing of that old administration. There's this great apostasy happening among the people of God. And Paul is telling Timothy about this. He's like, Timothy, you know, in verse 1, but realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, uh, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, 
haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Pastor Timothy, pastoring the church at Ephesus. This is the condition. This is what you're dealing with. This is the kind of people you're dealing with, Timothy. Avoid them. They give off this outward, they give off this outward air of religion. They're all about this outward institution of religion. I'm a member of a church. I attend so many times a month. I'm, I'm, you know, I do what is, well, I, I like this. I've been asked, I was asked this one time. Literally asked this. I couldn't, I really had to ask again what was said, but he said, well, what's, what's the bare minimum? What's the bare minimum? I mean, you know, I mean, what, what's, I mean, what do I need? This is the, this is the question to the session. What do, what's the least I can do and not get excommunicated? <laughs> I have never been asked that before. I mean, I, I believe the guy was being genuinely honest. I believe he's an unbeliever. Believers don't ask that kind of question. Believers come to the fountain of grace and they recognize their sinfulness. And I'm like, Lord, cleanse me and wash me. I am thy servant. What would you have me to do? What do I need to do? And yet here's a guy sitting before the session. Well, what's, the, what's the minimum I need to do so that I don't get excommunicated? I don't even know how to answer the question. I mean, what would you tell him? Well, you know, you know come, you know, I mean, at least, I mean, come a couple times a month. I mean, but I mean, if your heart's not right with God, that's, that's, that's the point. You need to be right with God. You need to have genuine faith and genuine faith longs to please God. It longs to be with God. It longs for the things of God. That's the difference in the, the ten virgins. The five took oil with them. They were prepared. Yes, they fell asleep. The church can fall into a slumber, but when it comes time for the call of the bridegroom, guess what they do? They rise up and meet him. There is no perfect church and there is no perfect Christian, but there are true Christians. There is true faith. There is saving faith. There is a persevering faith. There is a faith that hates sin. There is a faith that longs to worship. There is a faith that loves God. There is a faith that loves God's people. There is a faith, beloved, that loves God's church. Make no mistake about it. There is a faith that wants to be separate from the world. And that's what we're talking about here. Let's move quickly through these last three points. The other warning or the other sign or the other condition is the warning of temporal judgments. The warning of temporal judgments. Uh, in Genesis 18, we see that, that, that the Lord is confirming with Abraham that he is going to teach his children the commandments of God. But then, then... Abraham is told a secret, if you will, about what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is God's friend. But this is what I want to point out with you about Sodom and Gomorrah. 
We say, Jess, are you saying that's the church? No, I'm not saying it's the church. But I'm going to make a point. What God says about Sodom and Gomorrah is this. Their sins were exceedingly grave. They weren't just grave. They were exceedingly grave. So much so that God had determined it's best they not exist. And nations rise and fall under the sovereign hand of the Almighty. And this is one of them. That it's best. That not just the church, certainly not good for the church for people like that to exist, but even in God's common grace and natural law, according to the inhabitants around them, you can imagine the infection of their immorality, which is, tends to happen, right? But we know also, if we know our Bibles, we know that Abraham's nephew lived down there in that exceedingly sinful place. What is astounding about Lot's dwelling in that place with his wife and daughters, not just sons, but daughters, is Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says that delivered righteous Lot, that Lot was delivered, a righteous man who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the inhabitants. Yet he lived there. Now let me say this. I want to make the connection of Lot living in Sodom. Did it make him a non-Christian? Did it make him a non-believer? No. But it cost him everything. It cost him his wife. She perished. And it cost him his daughters. It cost him everything. It cost him his integrity. They laughed at him. They mocked him. His son-in-laws did. It cost him everything. And none of us even today talk about, well, you won't be like Lot. Man, you got the faith of Lot. No, we don't say that. You got the faith of Abraham. We have to be careful, beloved, God does bring temporal judgments into this world, and we have to be watchful for it. We have to be mindful. What, here's so staggering about Lot. The angels had to literally drag him off after telling him judgment's coming. You have to leave now. Genesis 6 verse 5 through 8, again, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Notice the similarity. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart so that the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, because we know the theology and doctrine of our God. He's immutable. He, he, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't lack anything. He, he's not moved emotionally. And yet these verses talk about his repentance and being sorry that he had done something. We know that's hyperbole. We know that's figure of speech. That tells us just how sinful they were. 
It's a, it's a, it's a grammatical drama, if you will, helping us understand how sinful were they? They're so sinful that God who cannot repent said, I repent for making them. And that's to help us go, wow. Judgment comes, beloved, in this life. Nations are judged. Churches are judged. Nations fall. Churches close. Churches, the candlesticks are removed. I've already read to you Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22 and following this. Times of persecution are times when we ought to be looking for as conditions to heighten our vigilance, if you will. Here's one for you. This is the last one. What about the seemingly advancement and victory of the wicked? What about when we look around and we go, oh, they're winning everything. There's no institution we can go to to get real justice. If we get it, we're so happy because it's almost accidental. We'll turn to Psalm 73. Now, when we see the rise of the wicked, when we see the advancement of wickedness, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 the reality of coldness sets into believers. Coldness can set in with true believers when there's a great advancement and victory of the wicked. When Eli's sons were so wicked in their management of the temple and the sacrifices, in their immorality and their abuse of the temple services, stealing from the coffers, abusing the women and all of these things. It's, it, people quit coming. People quit coming to worship. People quit coming. God's people quit showing up with their sacrifice. They did not want to contend with this wickedness. And you can see that the hearts of God's people grow cold when there is the advancement and victory of the wicked. It's the same way right here. The Psalm of Esaph in Psalm 73 Surely, verse 1, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. And they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and the garment of violence covers them. And their eye bulges from fatness, and imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Wow, what a description! Of so many in our day, the mocking of righteous things and righteous people and holy things. Look at verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, and then I was senseless and ignorant, 
I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Sounds like faith, doesn't it? Sounds like even a a recommitment to his faith, doesn't it? For behold, those who are far off from you will perish. These men will perish. These people will perish. These ways will perish. For you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Doesn't that sound like? A recommitment and confession of faith. And brothers and sisters, I'm certain that's what we need to do. Recommit ourselves. We don't have to have justice out here, though it'd be nice. But ultimately, God's justice is what matters. And there is going to be a court set. There's a date already set. And there's going to be a trial. And God's going to come back. And he's going to reconcile all things. He's going to reconcile all things. Repair all injustices. He's going to take care of it. As you leave here this morning, I want you to ask yourself four questions about faith. The mark of true faith. The first mark of true faith is a genuine conviction of deserved judgment. I'm a sinner, and I'm in, I'm in, I deserve God's judgment. Number two, a genuine desire for the rules of godliness. Lord, show me the way you would have me go. Show me, Lord, the path you would have me walk. Tell me, O oh Lord, what to do. You are my master. I am the servant. And then number three, these are just some that I pulled up in thinking, genuine communion with Christ, John 15. He is divine, we are the branches. You can take everything you want away, but you can't take Christ. He is the, he is the chief joy and treasure of everyone who has genuine faith. Now, that faith can be weak, and it can be strong, but it always gets to victory. It, always, it's, it will never, ever leave you in utter depression. You will always desire Christ and even come to the place where you say, Lord, I need more of Christ. Yes, I, I've strayed. I want to come back. Lord, I long for you. I desire you. There's nothing that satisfies me. It's like Asaph. It's like Asaph's testimony. Lord, I have no one but you. There is no one but you. I longed, I envied those, but I want you. You are my strength. You are my portion forever. Communion. Communion. Which is what we are about to do in the means of grace right now. Let's pray.
Now, gracious Father, we come now to the taking of the Lord's Supper and let us be reminded, Lord, of these things that we've heard. These conditions and these circumstances, Lord, that we can see and certainly to one degree or another and in, various, in varying degrees, Lord, are present in our own day. Lord, we pray and ask that you would give us a vigilance, a heightened vigilance, Lord, the sober-mindedness, Lord, to live the day that we are in by faith. Lord, that we'd watch over it, we'd protect it, we would persevere it, Lord, we would seek to make genuine use of these means of grace that you have given to us, like the preaching of the gospel, the reading of the word, prayer, worship, Christian companionship, Father, thanksgiving, praise, and even now the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray your blessing upon us and we pray and ask that you will refocus us this day, that let us be like Asaph. We would recommit, Lord, our faith to you this day. In Christ's name, amen.